Hi, I'm Hallie, and I want to welcome you to the Odd Life Podcast. That's spelled A-W-E-D, which stands for Awake, Well, and Empowered. In this space, you will hear inspirational stories, candid and heartfelt conversations, as well as advice from experts, all with the intention of helping women like you live odd AF. Because I believe the more of us that live awake, well, and empowered, the better this world will be. So thank you for being here and welcome to your odd life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Hallie. Thank you for being here. I'm so excited for you to meet my next guest. Her name is Brooke Seam. She is a writer, a speaker, and an advocate for the practice of safe de-prescribing for psychiatric drugs. Uh, I just read her debut memoir, called May Cause Side Effects. It's about uh, her antidepressant withdrawal experience. It's kind of the long version of the work that she's done that's appeared in Washington Post, Psychology Today, and more. Uh, she's got a newsletter called Happiness is a Skill. And in that newsletter, she devotes her writing to educating people about antidepressant withdrawal, healing from depression, and also, obviously, the skill of happiness. In addition to her work uh, in the world of mental health, she's an award-winning chef with over 15 years in the industry. She co-founded New York City's Prohibition Bakery in 2011, was named one of Zagat's 30 Under 30 in 2014, and was crowned a Food Network Chop Champion in 2017. Even though the Prohibition Bakery is now closed, she still works as a private chef for elite performers and conducts research and development for CPG startups. I've loved getting to know her. Uh, I'm just fascinated by all the things she's doing right now because as we discussed in our conversation, uh, she feels like she's making up for lost time. And I think this is a fantastic example of not to wait to say yes to things and to experiment in life and try the hard things, learn new things because, uh, you know, Brooke feels like she got cheated by being on these psychiatric drugs for such, such a big chunk of her life that she missed out on a ton. And I think this book is very helpful for many reasons. Um, you don't have to be someone that's been on psychiatric drugs to understand this, to, to get it, to empathize with it. I think it's a fantastic read for anybody that wants to understand just how a person goes through a hard thing and comes out the other side. Reading this book is a really great example of how to get through a hard thing and what it looks like to get to the other side. So you could insert your own story in this and be inspired by her work that she's done on herself to get there. If you're a parent of kids that maybe you're debating whether or not your child should be on some type of psychiatric drug or help in that area, I think it's really important to know what you're getting yourself into. And to understand the work that she's doing now is to help spread awareness about the ramifications of it. And it's not that she's anti-pharmaceuticals. Uh, I think it's the way that it's done and how it's not looked at as a long-term impact on someone's life. She really wants to bring awareness to all of that. So I think this is a great conversation. I just loved learning more about her process, uh, the experiences that she had, and getting to know kind of the why behind a lot of what she's experienced. So uh, thank you for being here again, and I appreciate your, your listen. And without further delay, here's my conversation with author Brooke Seam. I want to introduce you to an amazing author and writer and person all around. Her name is Brooke Seam. I have just finished reading her book, uh, May Cause Side Effects. It was a fantastic read. I read it within a couple of days, and it's been a while since I've picked up a book and finished it within two days. So that says a lot. And this isn't necessarily a book I would normally find, but I found Brooke because of a 
I think a video, either TikTok or Instagram, and it was about her funny uh, jewelry and keychains that she started called the fuck it bucket. And it was hilarious. And so I was like, I got to know who this girl is. So I reached out, uh, checked out her website and here she is on the podcast. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you saying yes to doing this. I'm glad the fuck it bucket has legs, you know? Yes, it does. Uh, and we'll get into all that here in a second. But uh, I did the, the, the intro and people know kind of your, your basic bio, but I would love to talk about where this book come, came from, the origin story behind it, and uh, where your journey started with this. Well, there's kind of two origin stories. There's the origin story in the sense that what happened was that I was 15 years old and my, my father suddenly passed away. And this was 2001. I was taken to a child psychiatrist and put on a cocktail of antidepressants, which ultimately led to being on a cocktail of about six drugs for a variety of things. And I stayed on that same combination of, of drugs for the next 15 years. And, mm -hmm. you know, there was very little that was monitored. No one ever questioned it. There was no plan to ever get me off it. No one ever wondered how this might be negatively affecting my life. Yeah, there was yeah. no talk about long-term, short-term side effects. And so that's the origin story in the sense that the book is about when I realized that I had not had an unmedicated moment in my entire adult life yeah. and that I was not doing well, that maybe something needed to change. So I saw a doctor and tried to get off of these drugs and I was plunged into horrific antidepressant withdrawal. And the book is about the year I spent in withdrawal. Mm -hmm. However, there's an origin story, story to actually writing the book as well that I don't tell very often, but it's, it's pretty delightful in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah. I wanted to share that too. Um, what happened was I had gotten this very surprising and unplanned out of the blue opportunity to travel around the world for a year. Yeah. And I, I got it at a time when I was, you know, probably the most depressed I'd ever been, which I'd been on antidepressants for 15 years. And I started to do the math and say, well, you know, I really shouldn't be this depressed if my antidepressants were working. And that was kind of the impetus, uh, the combination of the travel plus that realization to get off these drugs. But, you know, I was in really deep withdrawal and I'd been on the road traveling for about nine months. It was not an eat, pray, love experience. I mean, you know, it was people go find themselves around the world. I was just trying to make it through every day and uh, have some semblance of healing. And about nine months in, I was in Vancouver, Canada. And, you know, I had been basically in a different country every month and I would have an apartment there. And I, and I was doing a puzzle and it kind of dawned on me that I'd spent a lot of my year traveling in the apartments wherever I was in the world, just doing puzzles or basically not being out in the world, which was kind of, you know, maybe not the point. And so I said, okay, well, I'm starting to like, you feel teensy bit better. So I said, okay, if I'm going to change this, I'm just going to go 180 degrees. And so, you know, I, I was really in a habit after 15 years of depression of saying no to things. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to say yes to literally every single thing, mm -hmm. every yes or no question, I'm going to track it and I'm going to say yes and just see what happens. And so everything from, do you want cream and sugar in your coffee, which is not how I take my coffee. But if I was asked by a barista, I said, yes. You know, uh, if someone was panhandling and asked me for money, if I, like, did I have change? The answer is yes. <laughs> Here you go. Here's my money. Literally every single yes or no question. I just watched what happened. And for the most part, it was fairly unremarkable in the sense that, 
you know, there were two big things that came from it, but day to day, it was just, you know, having coffee that wasn't quite my taste and listening to music at concerts that I probably wouldn't have gone to otherwise. But one of the things that happened is, so I had had a, had a book because I'm a chef by trade. Uh, I owned a bakery called Prohibition Bakery in New York City, and we had a book, a beautiful book based on our bakery. And the literary agent for that book, I was chatting with her, and she asked me in the middle of this experiment, which I was going to do for, I had planned to do it for a year, because I, you know, see, and I was on about day 50, and she said, do you want to write a book about your travels and withdrawal? And I was just like, ah, shit. (laughs) Great. I got to document all this. Yeah. I did not want to. Uh, anyone who's attempted to write a book knows that, you know, there's, only, there's, it is not an easy process yeah. to write a good book anyway. Yes, yes, and, exactly. Uh, but I was asked and so I had to say yes. And once I signed or once I decided to do that mm-hmm. in 2017, I, I, I abandoned the, what I called the yes quest because I couldn't, I had to start saying no if I was going to write a book, a good That's book. Right. That's right. Uh, but that's like really how the book came oh. into the world. I, I, I didn't, you know, this was not in my life plan. Yeah. Until I accidentally created a yeah. a scenario for myself that required I do it. Well, I was going to say is that I actually went down kind of the rabbit hole of Brooksim and I came across, you have a Medium account that you write Very there. Cool, unupdated it, Medium. Yeah. But you know what? Your writing there is fantastic. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of things that you've written that are, are here. yes, but you know what? That's you're speaking my language. I love that. So I feel like this has always been part of you really. Um, and just a matter of it coming out. And I think based on what I've read from you is that this writing piece was, even though it's always part of you, it was way to process however you could, but two, it was part of you that maybe you had, um, kept hidden for a long, long time. Like, I think this is a part of who you are. You're just a really good writer. I think you're the kind of person too, from what I can see is you're just, you, you want to master things and you learn things and you want to tackle them. And then you are probably competitive by spirit. I don't know. So I see that you just want to tackle them and be really good. So you're not going to do anything half ass. Mm-hmm. And two, it is something that it's a gift for sure. And I was going to ask you about this. If the writing was something that you did all along the way. Cause I think you mentioned there's some journals. You had to go back and look at journals mm-hmm. to kind of pull some information out. Yeah. Do you feel like this is something that you've always been pulled towards or just a way of processing your life as you were going through this whole antidepressant world? The, the answer is yes and no. So I think that I was kind of born with just an innate ability to process the world through words. Mm-hmm. And I've always gravitated towards good writing and until our you know typical american school system beat the pleasure out of reading that's right yes i like reading i loved books as a as a kid you know my mom would read to me i'd we'd read every night you know and i would say i really started to lose that desire of both reading and writing when it became so academic and structured and even now i think about how they taught us you know the five paragraph essay and i'm just like well this is we just beat originality out of everyone. Absolutely. So, okay. <laughs> so the originality was being beat out of me right at the time that I was medicated. Yeah. And one of the big kind of side effects that people report on these drugs is that their their creativity and their curiosity absolutely goes completely into the dumpster. That's right. 
that's how I felt. And that happened to me right at about 15. So the tricky part with the time that I was medicated was that it was happening right at the time when you're really coming into yourself and you're, you're starting to explore the world in an independent way. And you're supposed to be thinking about what you want to do for a career or what you might want to major in in college, or do you even want to go to college? Like, what do you like? Right. Mm -hmm. That's the question that's being asked of high schoolers in theory. Right. I think what happened to me is because there were a lot of things I had interest in before I was medicated that as soon as I was medicated, it pretty much just disappeared. And I think we really attributed a lot of this to losing my father. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was sort of a grief response. But in retrospect, that doesn't make sense to me because yes, losing a parent, losing having a big loss at that age certainly changes you. But to me, it's like, kind of like you, you you said, you come into the world with inclinations, with talents, with curiosities. And I can see where, you know, if you lose someone, maybe those sorts of things take a break. Maybe they take a pause. Maybe they're painful and it takes people a while to come back to them. But it felt very, it felt like a chemical thing, honestly, to just not have any interest in anything anymore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you know, for pretty much the next 15 years, when I was medicated, I really didn't write or have any creative ambition in any way, other than, I guess, loosely the, the bakery I owned, you know, we could say that there was some creativity sure. that happened there and branding and even just the act of cooking, creating recipes, that sort of thing. But it was, it was a means to an end. But then when I was in withdrawal, and I started to get the drugs out of my system, there are so many physiological changes. And one of them was that when I was medicated, I could sleep, I could easily sleep 13 hours a night if I had no reason to get up and take a two hour nap. I mean, I could just sleep constantly. And when I was in withdrawal, we pulled the drugs away. Suddenly I couldn't sleep at all. And so I just was up at one or two in the morning and I couldn't watch TV because the lights were too bright and the sounds were too bright. I struggled to listen to music. And so The only thing that I could really do at that hour for the first couple months of really acute withdrawal was paint. So I just kind of had this urge. I went to an art store and I bought some watercolors and started painting or sketching or whatever, not Picasso. It was kind of like this reawakening of the creativity. And once that happened, you know, and then I was traveling, I just made a commitment to myself that I was going to write 500 words a day, no matter how but it was just like free flowing. I was not trying to be good. It was just more of a, you better, you better record something of this experience because you might regret it. Um, when I look back on those, you know, hundreds of pages though, honestly, most of it was just me bitching. So it wasn't even <laughs> like I was taking in the majesty of the world. I was sure. about feeling fat because I was living off of cans of coconut milk. Yeah. Yeah, in Thailand. Yes. So it, it took some processing later when the book was actually being put into play to yeah. actually turn uh, hundreds of pages of bitching journals into actual literary words. Yeah, yeah. Two, two very different kinds of writing. Yeah, well, you did a fantastic job. I mean, as I was reading it, I know it's a great book when I am picturing it the entire time like a movie. Yeah. Like I watched it like a movie in my head the entire time. The descriptions you made and recalled as you were coming off the withdrawals, being out in the streets, the noise, uh, all these things. It was like, I was right there. It was such a movie moment. So I I really feel like for me, a great book is when I can picture myself in a different world. And that's exactly what you did. That's why 
I really feel like this is something fantastic that people need to read, regardless of whether medications like this have been in your life or not. It's such a, a great awareness about just in general, this epidemic we have in, in this society of, oh, here's a, here's a quick fix or what we say is a quick fix. However, didn't really fix a whole lot, honestly. All, all it did was yeah. put you in a state of numb your entire life. I want to go back to that for a quick second is what were the actual medications? You started out with something and then you kind of progressed into other things. Where did you start with your medications? What were you taking? If you don't mind talking about that and then what you ended up with. Yeah, I so like I said, it was 2001 mm -hmm. and I was 15 and you know, this was before the days of electronic records. So yeah. a lot of those records are d gone. Yeah. So I know, there are a couple things I know for sure. I know that we tried two drugs before landing on the, co the combination that I was on. Mm -hmm. And I know that at that time, there were two drugs approved for use in children and teens by the FDA. Those mm -hmm. two drugs were Prozac and Zoloft. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that those were the two drugs we tried. Also, my father had spent some time on Prozac and I just think that it would have been a natural one for them to try. Sure, to reach but for, I, don't, yeah. I don't know for sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do know that the two drugs we tried, I had very obvious negative side effects right away. One of them just made my heart race so fast and I just mm -hmm. did not feel at all right. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, I just couldn't stay awake. It was mm -hmm. like, and I don't remember the doses. Maybe, maybe it was too high doses. I don't know. But, yeah. uh, but I know that we pretty quickly ditched those. And so I ended up on a combination of Effexor XR and Wellbutrin XL, which were not approved for use in children or teens at that time and still aren't. <laughs> yeah. But you were put on them. Mm. But I was put on them because mm. you know, we have a thing called off-label prescribing. I got it. Got it. And so going through what was, if you could describe what was life, because I think about being 15 I mean, mm -hmm. that is the time in your life where you're just trying to figure out who you are, how to navigate the world a little bit. You're getting, you're getting your independence because you're, you're getting ready to drive. There's a lot of things that happen in that time frame. And then here you are medicated because mm -hmm. of something. And I, I do want to reference this too in the book. You mentioned that your father passes away suddenly. You go to a child psychologist to talk about it. And yeah, she's, a complete, she's a complete nitwit. Nitwit. Yeah. And does not even remotely do justice to her occupation. And then she recommends you to a psychiatrist because you pass help in therapy, right? Or whatever her, her justification is. And so you're getting prescribed medication at a point where you're just getting to figure out who you are. And then you take this. Tell us a little bit how this impacted your life. What did your life look like now on this medication? What was a day-to-day -day for you? The way you felt, how you navigated life? For the next 10, 15 years? What did that look like for you? I think about this a lot because this is not a topic that's gotten less common since mm -hmm. it happened to me. It's getting far more common and we're, you know, putting three-year-olds on methamphetamines and ADHD drugs and yeah. think it's normal, right? And yeah. I, I think what what is really missed here is there, there's no long-term thinking at all mm -hmm. and it's all short-term fixes and the tricky part can be now I mean this is I, I have some stronger feelings about you know the world of ADHD drugs and how mm -hmm. we're doing that uh, just because rambunctiousness is not life-threatening yes so right. me, this is this is clearly medicating an inconvenience yes. or or it's someone feeling other because they can't or don't want to or 
they just think differently mm-hmm. and they feel other because of it and they want to come back to the middle of the bell curve somehow. Yeah. Right? Or so, I feel like it's also, I feel like it's also the typical American diet can make a huge impact on that oh, too. Oh, for, oh, for sure. We're not even getting into that. I mean, yeah. like, so it's like, you comes know, from all sides. Talk about how food affects your health and well-being, and people, you know, label you as a goddamn conspiracy theorist. Yes, I know. But, um, but so I like just putting the ADHD drugs aside because I think the difference between, you know, at least the difference between the arguments between ADHD drugs and antidepressants is that people very often like to rely on the narrative that antidepressants saved my life. So, so we're in a different realm of let's say severity, we're not medicating an inconvenience here in theory for some people. Now, my personal opinions on that are kind of moot from the standpoint of this is what we are doing. And this is the narrative we have established. It's the narrative that has been established. And so that's where we are. So that's where we have to look at Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. I think that when I was medicated, my mother had to sign off on this. And I have a vague recollection of having a conversation about it, but I mean, it was 2001. We didn't have the research we have now, although we still don't have any meaningful long-term clinical trials or studies of long-term antidepressants, you know, what we normally get are six to 12-week trials. And the fraud and the data cooking in this particular realm of medicine and science and pharma is horrific when you get it. So the thing was, no one talked about the intangible side effects as things were going on. We were looking at, are you falling asleep in class? Like, do you feel good, right? And was I supposed to feel good right after my dad died? I don't know. Man. Like, it's going to shut down. You know, there, there was, there's no test for any of this. So it's not like we could take a blood marker and see like, oh, you have this many depressions per million, right? None of that existed. It was all about feeling, which is already a mess when you're 15. But I think what we didn't realize and what parents really don't realize now is that when you make a choice like this, you change the trajectory of the kid by a matter of maybe a fraction of degree. And it doesn't seem to make a big difference for a while. But if you're a plane and you're flying from Los Angeles to New York City, and you go one degree off, you are not going to end up in New York City. You are going to end up eventually on the North Pole. It's completely different as time goes by and that that widening gets bigger and bigger. So if we look at the intangible effects for medicating me at 15 years old, the big ones that are still affecting my life today, 20 years later, are financially when you lose all curiosity and creativity and ambition because you're medicated, well, you're not really all that interested in finding work or saving. I didn't really want to be alive after all of this. So why would I have, you know, why would I save for a future that I didn't want? I was deeply behind from a money standpoint. I had not ever thought about savings or trying to put myself in a good position for the future because I didn't want a future. Um, Sexual and reproductive health. I mean, these drugs are notorious for screwing up your sexual health and libido. And when you do that to a 15 year old who's kind of at the edge of of burgeoning into that world, I promise it's gonna screw a lot of things up. And the amount of questions I have had around that is, so frustrating because it was so taken away from me. And, and I'm lucky. I'm not, you know, I don't 
suffer from PSSD, which is post-SSRI sexual dysfunction anymore. Like some people are basically chemically castrated for life because their parents put them on a drug when they were 10. Or, or no one told them that this was a possibility. So you want a way to make a relationship more difficult? Throw issues like that into it, right? Socially, I very often, less now, because it's been seven years since I've been unmedicated and I've had to work at it, but socially for a long time, I've felt very like, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, there's just a difference between me and other people. And I think that it has more to do with the fact that because my curiosity was completely eradicated, I wasn't curious about other people. And so I didn't really learn during this time in my life to be curious with new people and how to have interactions with strangers and new people and first dates. And I've actually had people ask me if I was like somehow neurodivergent or something. And I was like, I don't... Like, yeah. I don't think so. I think yeah. I was just medicated for too long. I mean, I'm like literally having to learn how to talk to people and be interested in people. And the reason why I, I, I bring this up, I've talked to other people who've spent, who are medicated for the length of time I was at around the same time. And we're all just sitting there looking around saying, we missed a lot. Like there is a lot that we just didn't learn. And you don't realize it's happening. You just think you're deeply introverted or that you hate people. It's not you just don't know how to understand people and you struggle to see the humanity and the interest in them um then from a career standpoint i mean negative feelings and discomfort can be signs that you are not on the right path if you don't have the feedback you're not going to learn and so i spent so much of my life in jobs and careers that I think, in places in the world that I think were wrong for me because I wasn't really registering the feedback that, hey, this place is wrong for you. This job is wrong for you. These people are wrong for you because I couldn't feel anything and didn't care to feel anything. And so those are some issues that I promise are a lot easier to learn when you're 21 than they are when you're 35. And you're going back in time. It's almost going back to your you know, trying to figure out okay, where was I before all this happened? And how do you start from that point to learn and try and, you know, fast right. track it? When the only frame of reference is you're 14 and now you're 30, like, shit, that's not the same person. Yeah. No matter what. There's nothing you, there's no frame of reference there. So I just right. had to completely start over and it, it was brutal. I love that you said this earlier about saying yes to things. And it leads me really to the point of, when you decided to go off the drugs, it's because I think of two things that you did. You kind of saw them both roughly at the same time. And you said yes to both. You applied to both. Well, sort of. Um, I applied to both of them. Chopped was, I had met, I'm a chef by trade. And so yes. I met the casting director at a party because the casting director and I had the same physical therapist, which Got is it. something that only happens in New York. Um, and she just said, basically, we're always looking for local females because they don't pay for travel. So, and there's oh, no sure. in, in, in the industry. So apply. And at that time I was, I was deeply, deeply depressed. And I was 20, 29, mm -hmm. I think when I applied, I owned a boozy bakery. So there was a lot of alcohol in my sure. life in the way that it is for 20 year olds, yeah. but I was somewhere between drunk and buzzed, I think. And yeah. I was like, well, fuck it. I mean, I didn't have anything else going on. So I applied and completely forgot about it because I just figured they would never choose me. 
And then around the same time, I did see the Facebook ad for this travel lottery, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it was the same thing. I just, I just completely threw in a drunken application. So I had not, in either case, even considered getting off the antidepressants at that point. I, mm-hmm. I felt very much in a mentality of, if I'm this depressed on antidepressants, what am I going to be like without them? Yeah. And then the question you had for yourself was, okay, if I'm going to if I'm going to get to this next level and go on this remote trip, am I going to take all these drugs with me? And you had to balance this. Okay. Do I take them all with me? How am I going to do this? And, and going back and forth. And eventually that was maybe part of the reason why you decided to get off of them because you were looking at, I think numbers and your life at that point, but just one of those things where you said yes to something and then that changed the complete trajectory of your life. Yeah. Well, at the time I was on six different drugs because I had been on the two psychiatric drugs. And then within about a year of being on those drugs, a bunch of physical symptoms appeared that no one ever put two and two together and said, Hey, maybe these drugs are causing these issues. So by the time I, you know, I hit 30, I was taking between six and eight pills a day, depending on what the situation was. And from a purely ergonomic standpoint, it was going to be impossible for me to take a year's worth of these drugs yeah. in a suitcase because I didn't have unlimited space. And on top of that, you know, I wasn't going to places like London where I felt like I could really trust that whatever drug I was being prescribed was the same version. Yeah. And some of the countries we were in don't even allow psychiatric drugs into the country. So right. all in all, I was looking at this saying like, well, this isn't going to work. And I was also still so depressed that if I can just get off, like stop taking the effects from the Wellbutrin, they're clearly not working. Mm-hmm. So I figured in my head, I was like, well, we just get off them for a little while to figure out what my baseline is. And then we'll get a different drug and we'll yeah. just start basically swapping one for two. And everything else I figured I was going to be on forever. And then I was just going to have to somehow figure out how to get them in bags. But when I got off the psych drugs and withdrawal set in, I started to realize what had actually been happening to me for 15 years. Then as time went on and I refused to go on another one, I started to just question the other pills too. And so I just started experimenting with taking them out. And the next thing you know, my thyroid had righted itself and I was diagnosed with something called bile reflux disease that that completely went away. And everything else I was on, it was all these physical ailments that we thought were completely independent. Yeah. And I was just sort of sickly disappeared. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know, is it coincidence or not? And you know, um, when you said something about the decision at that point to go off and you did it, you went to another psychiatrist to talk about it mm-hmm. and to see what their advice was. And yeah, I, I did what the commercials told me to do. I saw yeah, my doctor. Saw your doctor. And again, not a great individual to go see because both times this has happened for you is you go for someone for help and you feel like you're inconveniencing them, mm-hmm. like you're uh, a problem, a burden, something along those lines. And it's the last thing that you need to feel in that moment. Mm-hmm. And here you're like, well, again, fuck it. I'm gonna, just going to do it my way, I guess, because you're not yeah. really truly helping. Or you go to the doctor that doesn't do that, right? They just give you what you want in five minutes because it's like, well, this is easier. Yeah. I mean, I got most of my prescriptions in New York for eight years from a GP. Yeah. Who didn't do a physical ever. And one day, four years in, called me and said, you know, we never did a physical. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You think? Yeah. 
you know, that's my biggest other thing with doctors is like, you know, you've got all these symptoms, but the lifestyle question never comes up, what you're eating, what you're drinking, how you're sleeping, all of those things are never questioned. And those make a huge impact on your health, but yet it's never part of the discussion. It's my And I don't really see that changing anytime soon. And like, there's a quote that I'm totally misremembering, but it's something like, you know, uh, like, you know, you, you like a person, but you don't like people, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think if we kind of extrapolate that as a whole doctors, as a concept are in a real tricky place, they're, they're, they're the product of their training. Yeah. Their training doesn't teach nutrition. Yep. Their training doesn't ask about lifestyle. Their training is mostly pharmaceutical based because it's influenced by the pharmaceutical companies. And that's just the situation we've set up combined with the pressures and irritations and stresses of insurance companies. That's right. They're not in a position where as a group, they haven't been taught to ask these questions and they certainly haven't been taught to answer them. Yeah. Like health and diet and all that stuff. However, on an individual level, I start to get really frustrated as well because I see a combination of doctors who really are aware of how screwed up the system is and they educate themselves and they make an effort and they do the best they can within whatever system they've created. I think this is why we're seeing a lot of doctors move to concierge medicine that doesn't take insurance because they actually want to help people. Unfortunately, there's a cost that comes with that. Yep. But then I also run into such a huge amount of arrogance and a refusal to look at continuing education that maybe doesn't fit with the narrative you were given Mm -hmm. in medical school 25 years ago. Yeah. And sometimes things come out of their mouths that I can't believe about nutrition. And then I hear stories from people and then I have my own stories. I mean, I only gave two or three examples of the horrific doctors that I have in my book, but there was probably at least half a dozen more, some of which, some of the stories which were even worse than the ones that were in the book. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. So, you know, and then I also spent part of this year working with a functional medicine doctor who was fantastic. Yeah. I paid an arm and leg for it. I know. I actually got the help I needed. So all that to say is I think it's really important for patients and parents to understand the limitations of the quote unquote expert that they're going to get information from and understand where that information is coming from and how the system works. Unfortunately, that's on the parent slash patient to learn that. But we live in a world of information where there are probably dozens of podcasts out there run by doctors. Yeah real strong training who will tell you what the system yeah like. So there's no excuse here. And at the same time, if you have a doctor who won't listen to you, who isn't open, who if you bring research to them or you bring something to them and they say, you know, something along the lines of don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree, then that's a sign to run far, far away. That's right. This needs to be a team effort. And any doctor who doesn't realize that is not a doctor worth having. That's right. I would thousand percent agree. And I think that the public is becoming more knowledgeable because of, like you said, the Google searches, but it's not that we're just like believing the first article. When I started to change things in my life, I read from multiple sources. And if the message became consistent across all of those sources, then I'm like, yeah. okay, I've got something here. And I think they discredit thinking that oh, we're just looking at the first thing that pops up and that's what we're going to believe. We want to solve the problem. It's not like we're 
jumping to conclusions too soon. I, I think that's a really important thing you said. I I would always recommend to people that you got to get beyond the first page of Google. Yeah. Because if you understand even a little bit of how those things work, I mean, aside from just like marketing and money that, that, that can push websites, you have SEOs, you have legacy things, yeah. you have yeah. all sorts of things that mean that the front page is not always where the... Yeah right information lives. And I, you know, I really recommend read, read the good stuff, read the bad stuff, read the stuff you agree with and read the stuff you might not agree with because mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle is going to be the truth for you. Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to the moment where you decide to do these things and it's all in the book, obviously, but give us a taste of what it was like, just so people could understand getting off these medications, the, the feelings, just what was happening in your life to, to go through that. And, what you would have done differently had you had known, or would you have done the same thing? I don't know. Tell us what your what your experience was like through that. Like the physical experience? Yeah. So the thing that's really tricky about psychiatric drug withdrawal and antidepressant withdrawal, there's a couple of tricky things about it. The first is that it doesn't affect everyone, but it affects a lot of people. So mm -hmm. the, the, the research that has looked at it suggests that about half the people who are on antidepressants will experience some sort of withdrawal. And about uh, half of those people, so 25% of people who take these drugs have severe withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge amount of people. And it's kind of a coin toss. There are plenty of people out there who just stop taking them or they have a quick taper and they're fine. They don't have the, the, the situation that I was in, but there are also a huge amount of people who do. So that's the first thing to know is that you can't know which camp you're going to fall into until you're in it. So that's why I think it can be helpful to understand what can happen. But as far as the symptoms I experienced and the severity of it, what I didn't realize was happening, and the reason why is because I was medicated right in the middle of puberty. And so I was more child than not. And then I stayed on those same drugs as my brain and body were developing. And so when I got spit out on the other side of all that at, you know, 25, 26, when you kind of feel like you're done baking, yeah. I just thought I was who I was, right? But what I didn't understand is that these drugs had had a systematic effect. You're told that it's about your emotional state, but I didn't realize it was affecting my entire physical state as well. And so I knew right away from the first couple of days of not taking the Effexor because my doctor had me stop taking Effexor first and then later we were going to adjust the Wellbutrin. But Effexor is a very short half-life. It's an SNRI and those are pretty notorious for being very difficult to get off of. But for me, the very first major set of symptoms I had were literally on all five senses. It was, I was walking on the streets of New York and all of a sudden it was dusk time when all the headlights were coming on. And I looked at the headlights and just in this one moment, they all went from being kind of fuzzy orbs to really angled stars. And that was weird, right? To just be around and all of a sudden I felt like I was in an Instagram filter people like around you know the sharpness of things and the saturation literally all the colors deepened and brightened and this all happened in a, like a matter of minutes at least it felt like it you know all of a sudden it was kind of like I had had cotton in my ears and someone pulled the cotton out everything was really loud and then I had the same sensation on my skin where it started to rain and the raindrops like it's like, it's like I had spent my whole life getting wet in the rain, but I'd never felt an individual raindrop. There's no other way to describe it other than noticing 
the hundreds of droplets on my skin and it kind of hurt a little bit. And so that was the moment where I said, oh boy, this something is going to happen here. And then soon after that, my sense of smell started to change and I was a chef. My sense of taste started to change. And so this literally all five senses were affected. And then the psychological onslaught came through a little bit after that. And that by far was the hardest part to handle because when you have really scary thoughts and talking violent thoughts about yourself or somebody else, that's usually where people are like, oh God, we got to lock them up, you know? But this was a withdrawal reaction caused by a chemical in my body being pulled away and it manifested in psychological torture. Uh, almost like not quite a hallucination. It wasn't like you look at a lamp and it turns into a scary gnome. It wasn't that kind of hallucination, but it was more like if there was kind of a veil over your vision and you could see almost like multiple outcomes of the situation. Uh, the best way I can describe it, I think a lot of people have experienced this. If you're ever driving on the highway and you just suddenly think to yourself, what if I just drive right into the median, right? <laughs> like, yeah. what would happen? That's kind of the classic intrusive thought. So if you imagine that happening hundreds of times a day, and I was triggered by faces, which is really problematic that I'd see people's faces and then I would have horrific intrusive thoughts. And if I had gone back to a psychiatrist, they would have just one, maybe put me on an involuntary psychiatric hold, or they would have just diagnosed me as having an episode, possibly bipolar. They would have given me more medication. No one would have ever said, oh my gosh, this is a withdrawal reaction of coming off of a low dose of a common antidepressant that you yeah. <laughs> They're now deeming you you're crazy and yeah. putting you putting you away. Uh, how did you get through? I mean, I obviously I've read the book, but for people that haven't read it yet, how did you get through that? Like, what are the things that you reach for? How did you, I mean, maintain your um, I say focus because I know I'm sure I didn't feel like focus at the time, but you were so determined to stick with it and not let that happen to you. What are the tools that you reach for? What were the things that helped you? get through all that? I think about this a lot because I wonder often what the difference was between me and people who can't handle it or mm -hmm. don't have that. I call it kind of an inner resilience it comes up a lot. And because people reach out to me all the time and very often I'll hear from people, they're like, I couldn't do it. So I went back on the drug like that to them is a least horrible option out of two horrible options. And you know, I wonder, is this because did they have it worse than me? Like, what is it? Or is it something innate within each of us? And I, I don't have a real answer, but I think the, the two things that come to mind with me are those couple things. The first is that, um, this is kind of fascinating, but I was a very serious ballet dancer growing up. So I was taught to basically push through the pain. I mean, ballet is really painful. So everything always hurts and you're losing toenails and bleeding through your point shoes, but you have a smile on your face and a pretty crown. There's a really cool research study where they actually measured ballet dancers' response to pain and they, they don't start reporting pain until later than the average person. So I, I think that there may actually have been something wired into me from that experience that this, this brutal resilience and ability to withstand discomfort. The other thing is I am, I'm a very intense person and God, I was just pissed off. I was so angry. And I think that I was angry because as soon as all the five senses started waking up, it started to explain a lot 
of the dissociation and disconnection and frustration I had felt in the world. And when I realized that not only had that happened to me, but that it had happened for the entirety of my 20s, the entirety of my college experience, I was just so pissed off because I know that my life would have been completely different. Might not have been better, but it would have been different had I been in charge emotionally and not kind of have had this veil over me. And it still pisses me off that I don't get to have a crystal ball that tells me how it might have been because I feel like choices were made for me completely unintentionally by a drug that I was given when I was a kid. Like it just pisses me off. So I refused, even though I was given other psychiatric drugs to help bridge, they call it bridging. The idea is they put you on a different one to help bridge the side effects, which intuitively didn't make any sense to me. And um, so I chose not to take it. Also things like alcohol didn't help. So the idea of drinking to numb it didn't help. Sometimes it would make things worse. So I was left in a situation where the only option was to endure it. And I was so angry that I had the motivation to not let it win, <laughs> which I don't think that's not something that everybody has, which could probably beneficial <laughs> for your life. And then the last thing I had that I know that a lot of people don't have is my mother is my favorite person in the world. And I have absolutely no resentment towards her for the choices she made when she was doing the best she could. And when I called her, she picked up the phone every time. So she never, ever saw me as broken. Even when I was medicated, she suggested multiple times over the course of the years that maybe I needed to look at this medication situation and get off of them. It was just unending, enduring support and love, no matter what I said or what I was going through or how much my life was falling apart or if the situation was looking like I was gonna have to move home, like whatever it was, it didn't matter. She picked up the phone and the support was there. And it was this light in the fog that, that didn't believe me when I said I felt like I was really sick or crazy. She didn't let me go there. And you know, a lot of people don't have that. And then combined with some counseling that I started doing, which was a very different style of counseling than your traditional talk therapy that kind of allowed me to address all the emotion around everything in an unconventional way. And I think that all that combined is what ultimately got me through it. Yeah. It was a fascinating, that part of the book was like, was like, wow, wow, wow. I'm just going through this. And for you to be able to pull that back up, was it therapeutic to write it after a while? Or was it actually hard because it was drudging up all that stuff again? Uh, ne neither. You know, a lot of people say that writing is therapy. and It, it wasn't for me. Got it. <laughs> I did not enjoy the process at all. And I do not think that it really <laughs> did anything for my feeling. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, not, not a fan. But I, I, I wrote the book because... I recognized that there was, that this was a topic that wasn't going to go away and it was going to grow in importance over the years, which is exactly what has happened. And also there's just, there's so few resources and there was no account of what withdrawal is like. And so you can't be a doctor and recognize withdrawal if you don't have any experience with it yourself or have an account of it, you know, patients anything in psychiatry and psychology makes people feel like they're the only person in the world and that they're crazy and we can't compare, which is why part of why we're in the situation we're in. So I wanted to have effectively the book I wished I'd had yes. at the time, because if I had known that what I was experiencing was not me and was in fact the result of a chemical being taken away in my body too fast, 
I, I think it would have just been a lot comforting and a lot less horrific to yeah. think that you're just screwed forever. That's right. And the moment where you talk about all those sensations coming back and the, the feelings and all that, it just was such an eye-opener to how, whether it's alcohol, drugs, pharmaceuticals, TV, shopping, we, we've found multiple ways to numb out in our lives. Yeah. And we pull those things away. Obviously, pharmaceuticals and these kind of drugs are much more intense. There's a lot more going on. But it was such a great way to say, regardless of whatever your situation is, if you read this book, insert whatever thing that you're maybe addicted to or that, that's controlling you, mm -hmm. and you take that away, the vibrancy, the sensations, the awakeness you get from just living your life, all that comes to be and all of a sudden you say, I wanted to live. Like that window was no longer mm -hmm. um, an option. I didn't want to go near the window again. And it just was such a cool moment to read that. Those things that were happening to you helped you see that, oh, wait, this is how life is supposed to be. This is the way I'm supposed to be feeling. Even though it's super intense for a while because of just all of it rushing back because you have been numb for so long. It was a really cool moment to see that. And I think that's you basically embodied gratitude in all those things that you shared. And you talk about gratitude a little bit, a couple articles I read um, that you wrote about how it's not a, it's not a statement, it's a feeling. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when you came off these things where you switched to that feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm grateful for this? Was there a, a defining moment or do you think over time as you were going through this that you felt? Yeah, I think it's over time. And I think that's one of the trickiest bits about both gratitude and healing. I mean, I, I thought the idea of, gratitude was just the biggest pile of bullshit ever. <laughs> so long because it's almost like if you're really deeply suffering it it's it's taunting right you think to yourself i'm i mean it's so self-involved you're like i am in so much pain how could you expect me to be grateful for it right that's that's what people say that's how i thought and it's not something you know and then and then you hear the phrase too you know you choose whether or not you want to be depressed. You choose depression. People get real upset about that because, you know, you know, they talk about their faulty brain wiring or their chemical imbalance or all these other things that all they all it does is really enforce a story that's totally not true, but it's one you've made true to yourself. But the thing is, is that all of these things are so incremental and it's 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 basically the reverse of, you know, the initial situation back to the airplane metaphor, right? yourself on a one degree difference, you're not going to notice how far off course you've strayed until you wake up and realize you're not at all where you wanted to be. But in order to get yourself back where you think you need to be, you have to make another one degree shift. And it looks the same for a really long time. And, and you don't notice the little things that are changing. And there is no instant gratification in healing. I think for gratefulness and gratitude, I think it's a muscle that needs to be flexed and people don't even have the tools to understand how to begin that because we don't, we don't teach them. And, but the narrative instead is, oh, you know, suffering ends when gratitude begins and that that's true, but there's a lot of steps that happen from the moment you decide, okay, I'm going to help myself to actually understanding gratitude. And, and we don't, teach that we don't talk about that in part because I think people just don't know how but I talk about it a little bit in my book and I've talked about it more since in my newsletter or just 
general writings, but you just kind of have to pay attention to when things feel different and when they feel, when you do feel curious or you feel open or you just notice a little bit of beauty that that's the beauty of the world and gratitude trying to reach you, but it takes a long time. But I think unlike physical fitness, I, I think that it's something that once you start flexing that muscle, you build it and it's always there for you. It, it, it's a tool that doesn't rust. Um, it might feel like it in the beginning, but I don't think it's really something you lose. Once you start to recognize it and you feel it, you, you get it. And you might not choose to spend every day floating around in that world. I, yeah. I, I certainly don't. I don't think it's particularly um, typical to do that as much as everyone says, live every moment like your last. Like, I'm sorry, I got stuff to think about in the future, but I can click in whenever I want. And I will often kind of like click in for a moment. Yeah, go about my life and, and, you know, it becomes, it's not something you lose once you get it, which is rare. So being in New York, where did you start with your occupation? Did you go to culinary school right away? Did you follow the ballet thing? Where did your um, life take you once you got to New York? The ballet thing was long dead. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. I had a pretty generic, useless history degree. And the only consistent activity I'd been interested in for my life was food and cooking. So I just decided to go to culinary school and this was in 2008, but it was before the stock market and everything crashed. So my mentality was like, well, if this doesn't work out, I'll just go get a job. Then the thing is the stock market crashed a couple months later. And I, at that point was like, well, I guess I work in restaurants now because no one else is hiring. So I was in culinary school working in restaurants and I've just never been able to escape the industry uh, despite multiple attempts. Got it. Oh my gosh. Well, it's obviously uh, one of your innate talents as well, because it becomes, it's something that you actually reference in the book. Like it's, oh yeah, I made these cupcakes. I decided to get all these ingredients from making cupcakes. And then it turned into you opening this bakery. So it, it seemed very flippant in a way, in the way you addressed it, but it, it created a, an occupation for you, even though you were indicating it was quite miserable because of the business situation. If you could just create cupcakes and be done, but it's the whole business side and dealing with all that, that was a, a chore and a pain. Yeah. Um, but then like, let's talk about you. You go on Chopped, you end up, this is through your whole withdrawal process mm -hmm. and you end up winning on your mm -hmm. episode. I've never watched the shows. I don't know how it goes. Does it, you go on to the next round or is it just no, done? It's a one-off. Got it. So one, one episode is one day and they bring in a whole new batch of people the next day. <laughs> That's crazy. So you do this and then, okay, then your remote year, mm -hmm. you get accepted to do the remote year. Mm -hmm. What is the plan when you're remote working? Like writing, what was the, I'd say justification for doing this? Like what was your objective to go on this as far as an occupation and how are you going to make money? Oh, I had no plan. I had no plan at all. Um, I, I applied and in the application process before they, you know, like pick the people, they, they ask how you're going to make money. And I, yeah, I mean, did I lie? <laughs> I don't know. I definitely <laughs> truths and stretch the truth. Yeah, yeah. I own a brick and mortar bakery for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. How am I going to do this? Yeah. But I, but I so did not think I was going to get chosen for this, that I was like, this doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. No matter what I say, it's not like nothing that was ever going to happen. And then once I started making it through different rounds and in the end they picked me, it was like, well, shit, I guess I got to figure it out. And so I wasn't happy in my business anyway. So I was not upset about choosing to leave it. 
Um, I mean, it was hard. It was like a breakup, but when you knew it was the right thing. But for a while, I was writing for a fitness startup. So I was writing clickbait articles about deadlifts and stuff because I have a lot of experience in that world. And I did that for a little while. But frankly, once I got on the road, I was in pretty dire straits and I was struggling to work because of withdrawal. And I just basically quit and I went full unemployed for a while and just, I was in cheap countries. I was able to live pretty cheaply and I was just trying to figure out what happened next, but a lot of it was just in the realm of, of, of healing and retrospect. So I did love the journey that you shared. It was such a, it wasn't your eat, pray, love, but it was something along the lines of, um, just using that time to find yourself and figure out who you were and just getting to the next day. Honestly, it seemed like just getting through the day and getting through the day. And what I loved about it is that you were looking at all the places you were at and finding a way that would work for you, not sticking with, because the remote places you were stuck to stay, like where they had chosen to stay, you were like, this is not good. I can't be in this place. It doesn't, it feels very heavy and whatever. So you found alternate ways to experience it, but in the way that you needed to. So you found, I thought it was so cute. This uh, little place that you found had the shipping containers. It was in Malaysia the very first time. And here you are in a hammock and these multicolored shipping containers was really kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, what was that like to do that? It did something completely different. You were in a place, the concrete jungle of New York, to now in all these places that were, I don't know, I'm not saying free-for-all, but a little bit. Like there was no, you had no cell service. At one point you ruined your phone because of spilling something on it. Just a lot of stuff happening. And to now this all of a sudden this new world. What was that like? I mean, that, that just seems like it was such a opposite of what you had just come from. There's a, there's a phrase in Southeast Asia that's loosely translated to same, same, but different. Yeah. <laughs> and it just kind of felt like that same, same, but different because the thing was, is that I was in withdrawal. So my everyday focus was not how do I enjoy this place that I'm in? It was how do I get through the day? And what was kind of bonkers to me was that one of the biggest longstanding side effects from withdrawal that I still occasionally struggle with is, is noise sensitivity. And I thought that being on a beach in Thailand would be quiet, but not. <laughs> uh, in some ways it's much louder than even New York. New York, you have cacophony, there's constant noise, but it's its own soundtrack. In Thailand, it was some guy demolishing something like a, like a concrete something with a hacksaw and a hammer at six in the morning, at six at night, at midnight, didn't matter. So there, there actually was a, no relief from a lot of the uh, sounds and experiences. And so it was really a practice in learning how to give a lot less of a shit and what people thought. And sometimes I had to leave restaurants in the middle of the dinner because <laughs> someone would just decide to start cutting tile next to our table. I couldn't handle it. I was around a bunch of strangers because we were it was a social experiment too. So we were traveling in a group of about 50 people and they didn't know what was going on with me. So human exercise and figuring out how to manage that. Like, how do you, how do you have a, scary psychological experience around 50 people you don't trust 
There was a lot of hemming and hawing. I mean, I talked to my mom a lot. I would talk to other people. I might spend a few days trying to decide what I want to do. And then there was the fear of, okay, if I just get on a bus and go in the middle of nowhere and I don't know anyone and I don't speak the language, what could happen? There, there's a lot of practicing trust. A lot of realizing it took me a while to get here, probably at least six months, but I started to realize that people would show up in all of the countries I was in who were just little angels or people who are on the trip with me. If they were people living in the places we were in, whether or not they were an expat or a local or just some guy helping you with directions. I was just shocked at the, how the helpers came in. And that was, that was a big, big lesson that I've noticed how the right people just kind of seem to come in when, when they're needed. And that happens with everyone, but we just don't really notice it. Yeah. I loved, I loved your scuba diving story uh, in there and how the instructor helped out a ton. Yeah. It was, it was a cool story and just how touching it was when you were moving on to the next country and how he had, uh, had ordered something for, what did he order for you? Was it your own? Probably a scuba mask. Yeah. Scuba mask. Having a lot of trouble with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was a a symbol of your relationship and what you guys had been through together and, So cool. So cool. And the other cool thing was the whale shark incident where you got to be close to a whale shark at that moment for you and how you described it. I'm so glad you included that because it was such a pivotal, I think, just a sensory moment for you, but you were able to handle it and not get overloaded and overwhelmed by it. And uh, I've always had a fear of deep water and just getting to snorkel for me alone was, it's a major major challenge. I can only imagine what's like scuba diving and being that much closer to all those things in the water. So I just was like, oh my gosh, she's my hero. Cause I don't think I could do it. I would have lost my shit. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, and you don't really mention the book, actually you don't mention it at all, but I found it through Instagram is this thing called the grandmother project. Oh yeah. And I love this. And I want you to talk about it briefly. How did this come up and how it, it, it goes along with your travel, right? Like how did this whole develop? Oh, yeah, the grandmother project, um, I feel like it was a COVID casualty, unfortunately, because prior to that, uh, I had found ways to make a little bit of money while traveling. It was freelance writing and just kind of doing some little things here and there. But I had spent so long in the food industry at that point, and I was just exhausted from all the like pfft, foam on plate and all the pretentiousness. And I'm still kind of like, when I think about how pretentious food can be. And I was in that world, like I was putting the foam on the plate. So when I started traveling, I kind of, I made a loose commitment to not really eating in restaurants. I decided that, and by that I meant like fancy restaurants. I wanted to go sit on a plastic stool and eat much more, you know, humble food, if you will. And I had also semi-recently had, had lost a grandmother figure in my life who wasn't my biological grandmother, but she took the place. And I just remembered that my favorite eating experiences were sitting at her table and she made me a grilled cheese from Wonder Bread and American cheese and salty potato chips and salty pickles. <laughs> and water. <laughs> that That's my favorite eating memory in the whole world. And so I kind of decided I wanted to maybe see if I could recreate that to the best of my ability. So I started seeking out grandmothers in all of the countries I was in and I was looking for people who would let me come into their homes or their restaurants and teach me. And so I ended up cooking with 14 different grandmothers um, in nine countries. And sometimes they spoke English, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes we were 
in someone's home. Sometimes we were on a stove on the side of the street. And it just was just a way to connect not only with somebody else, but to this thing that had been such a big part of my life that I was, I was really losing the love for. And I was, I was writing about that. I, I initially had wanted to create a whole cookbook and keep traveling, but that kind of was uh, a little hampered by money because that would be very expensive. And I just didn't, I didn't have the finances to fund it myself and I didn't have the famousness to get somebody else to fund it. Um, and so, and then I also got the option. I was on that, my little yes quest and decided to start writing the other book, but I kind of kept doing it. Um, and then, you know, what we were actually trying to patch a TV show for it and then COVID hit and that really killed anything that involved wonderful elderly women in travel. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But that was such a cool, I mean, I love the Instagram stories that I've watched. And I think that is such a cool thing. Would you think you're ever going to revisit that again? You know, I would. Um, and at the same time, I feel like it's interesting how different people all over the world come up with the same idea at the same time. So mm. I've seen, mm. you know, their Mo Rocca did my grandmother's ravioli on Food Network. And there's the pasta grannies. Uh, and, or YouTube and actually just got a message from some production company out of the blue saying that they're trying to literally do the grandmother project and asking me if I knew any grandmothers. I was like, this is real, real classy guys. Thank you. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so, you know, and, and, uh, and it's all still runs into the same old problems of, of money and exposure and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, for me, I guess if the time was right, I would do it. And if I, get a chance to have any free time and some upcoming travels, I might try and seek out a grandmother, but um, it's not something I'm actively trying to yeah. masses. That was so cool though. I thought that was a really, a really neat aspect to turn, yeah. to give it a little more purpose behind your travels and a more in-depth experience for you. Yeah. Um, it kind of shifted from your trying to survive to now making it a little more ex experiential and, and yeah. meaningful behind the travels. That was such a cool aspect of the book that I didn't expect and didn't really know much going into it, but I just thought that the travel piece and just how it was so transformational for you and the way you describe it and being in different places, like going to the killing fields and those places that were just the way that you brought them into the book were really, I think, important for the reader to understand how impactful they were for you and just to help how it helped you, what you needed to get through. There's something that you wrote it was on page 138. I remember this is that it's, you talked about depression and this was, I think, because of your work with Alan. And if you read the book, you know who Alan is. You mentioned that maybe that's all depression is, mm -hmm. is a kind of remembering without the tools to release the memories. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned a lot of times feeling this heaviness to a lot of these places that you felt this and whether or not that's coming off the, the chemicals or the drugs, whatever, or just that's who you are. You're just a highly sensitive person or that you had this connection to the past. But I really loved that part because it was, I think, important for people to hear, especially if they are also those kinds of people, that it's okay. Like it's not a curse. It's not something that's wrong with you. You just have this deep connection to humanity and it's something that you saw as a way of understanding maybe who you are at, at your core level. And just maybe that's what depression is, that you're, it's, it's part of the process of you trying to kind of understand it. And I thought that was really a cool statement. 
Uh, I don't know if you want to address that anymore, but I just, I, th- I really love that part and it really just kind of clicked with me. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I would be, there's no way we could ever design, design a study like this, but I have a working hypothesis that a lot of the people who are medicated for depression, anxiety, or just highly sensitive people. Mm-hmm. I think that we all kind of collectively hold what's happening in the world and what's happened in the world in our bodies in a way we're not really aware of every day. And that the severity of your awareness of that can make it a lot harder to learn the skills you need to learn in order to see the beauty in the world mm-hmm. and have the tools that let you live a really wonderful, beautiful life in spite of whatever crap might be happening. Yeah. That's a, that's a skill you have to learn. And I think some people have a bigger mountain to climb there than others because they are more sensitive. And so they feel things deeper. Yeah. When you get back from traveling, you're back from your year. What does life look like for you then? What happens next? And how does it get you to where you are now? I like literally came back without a plan. And New York City is not a place to have no plan. I came back and, you know, I had subletted my apartment. So I came back to my apartment and I, and I kind of just knew, like, I think we're done here. Um, I, I'm still having terrible noise sensitivities. So I, anyway, physically, I was going to struggle. And so I had also met someone during my travels in, in, in Vancouver. And I just kind of said, I felt pretty good in Vancouver. And this person seems maybe important. So I'm going to go give that a shot. And that's what I did. And so that was the next phase of life. And then I stayed there for the next four years while I wrote the book. And then COVID hit and came back home in the middle of that relationship ended. And now we're here. I know the story, but tell us what you, what got you into now. You're a chef for athletes. Is that what you're doing now? Yeah. Yeah. I work with pro athletes. So I have a my ballet background is just kind of led into a lifetime of athletics and combine that with everything I've learned about how food and nutrition affects mental and physical performance. I've kind of fallen into this little niche where I, I do private work for pro athletes and I really, I really like it. Um, so that's my, that's my day to day. It's off season for a lot of sports right now. So things are quiet, but, um, that's my day to day. Sometimes I get frustrated. The book sales feel too low or that I didn't have the commercial success that Eat, Pray, Love did, for example. But then I realized that the whole point of my book and my life now is just the fact that I actually want to be here and I want to enjoy everything my world has to offer me. So I don't want to spend all my time in this world of pain and psychiatric drug withdrawal it's hard enough going through it i feel like i deserve to enjoy the less heavy things in life so i don't quite know what the next you know couple years look like i'm sure that i will continue to keep doing advocacy on this topic but i don't want to make it my full time i don't i like that at this point i can you know have a conversation like this and then go make chicken or something like, <laughs> Yeah. The better balance for yeah. me. I, I can't be one of these people who dedicates their whole yeah. life to this cause. It's it's not me. It's not how I want to live my life. And yeah. you know, the opportunity cost of that is you don't sell as many books, but yeah, I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. That's that's the whole point of this whole entire thing is to be happy. Right. <laughs> is there anything else you have in the works as far as writing? Or do you still write consistently now? 
I have a newsletter called Happiness is a Skill okay. that I write twice a month and that keeps my writing muscle in halfway decent shape. Yeah. I, I'm not working on another big book. I don't have anything planned. Got it. I'm open, yeah. in theory, but it's not an undertaking I would take lightly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, I still, in a lot of ways, the book came out in September of last year, 2022, yeah. and it's December 2023, and I still feel like I'm recovering because it was a five-year process. And my creativity now is much more visual at the moment. I have been obsessed with painting this year. It's like you said, all these things are being turned back on for you. Yeah. So, And life is short, as we all know, so might as well take advantage of that creativity when it hits and, and explore it and see what happens with it. As far as creativity goes, anything else has popped up that you're like, oh, where'd this come from? Oh God. I mean, the painting has definitely been where it's yeah. come from. Like, especially, especially the level, like I'm no prodigy here, yeah. but I had no idea that I was capable of some of the stuff I've been doing. And it's just kind of wild. Yeah. Like, where did this come from? That's you know? so cool. Um, you know, but beyond that, I, 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 it sounds a little weird to say, but I don't have any goals. My only real goal at this point is just to keep like I just want to keep living in a way that allows me to go on these adventures yeah for as long as I want in the way that I want so I that's very nebulous but I don't I don't really have a bucket list I'm very lucky I've done a lot of things I've seen a lot of things and yeah. now I trust that the right opportunities and the right people will come yep and I think I've laid a strong enough foundation to prove that I'm will do what I say I'm going to do and I'm good at what I do. And yeah. in the time, if you know, if it's a period of rest, then I'm trying to just get better at learning to rest. Yeah. So. Which I've been a very long time since you maybe felt like you could do that. Uh, yeah. It's what I'm doing right now. And it's just a little nerve wracking in some ways, but on the other hand, I feel like I really needed it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, well, the, the turmoil your body's gone through with the withdrawals and all that you've tried to adapt now to and, and, and handling all that, I think your body probably needed, like, this is how we have to operate for a little while, be through a lot. That, that's true. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a goddamn orchid. Like if <laughs> environment shifts by just a little bit. I just will and yeah. die. Yeah. How do we maintain homeostasis here? It's kind of the constant that's struggle. Right. <laughs> well, there's another part of you too that I admire is that I alluded to this earlier is that you push yourself in ways like I know this is also part of your training because of growing up ballet and all these things. I'm watching your videos on Instagram. You're doing cartwheels. Uh, what do you call those? The one, no hands. Aerials. Aerials. You're doing aerials on the beach and then you're getting on a, a balance beam and working on that. And there's not like you're competing at a, a level to do this. You're doing it for the fun of it. So you're pushing yourself. And uh, I think admirable because it's something most people don't do because that's hard. You know, it's hard and I don't want to hurt myself or I don't want to give this a try because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And you're just doing all these really cool things. I just, I think that's such a cool part of you that I've learned about. So. Oh, I really feel like I'm making up for lost time. I mean, yeah, I think I wasted my entire twenties being depressed and stubborn mm -hmm. and it pisses me off still. Yes. And you know, my dad died when he was 52, so that means he was halfway through at 26. Yeah. And I don't know where I'm at on that timeline, but if there's any world in which I'm also done at 52, then I'm sure shit not going to sit around wasting her in my 30s. That's right. That's so right. I'll go take the dance class and not know what I'm doing and risk breaking an arm being upside down because I love it and it's fine. Arms heal, you know? Yeah, that's right. 
I also don't have a family. <laughs> so I got a lot of time. Yeah. Finding ways to occupy your time. Well, I, I think it's awesome. If you guys haven't followed her on Instagram, you need to go follow because she's really inspiring. And the things you're doing, you can go back all the way through. She, you do some cooking videos. You share some recipes. You're, you kind of have a whole hodgepodge of chaos. things. It's controlled chaos. That's all right. But I love it. That's, I think, what's endearing about you, honestly, is there's so many aspects to you that now I think is such a cool shift for how long you probably felt really one-dimensional. You felt very... I'm not meaning to put words in your mouth, but uh, I, I would assume you felt like there was just a very simple way of life and just to get through with all the medications and numbing out that you weren't able to really explore these things. And now that you have this ability and that you have this awareness and you have this sens sensations of life that you're now doing all of these things. And I, I love it. I think it's such an inspiration for all of us, honestly, regardless of whatever we have in our life to, to keep saying yes to things and trying new things. And like you said, we don't know how long we've got. And why not do it now before it's too late? So I think that's super inspiring. So thank you for being that and, and allowing people to see that and, and showing up online to do that. So I end every episode with asking all of my guests, um, what is one thing right now that is helping you feel odd? And that stands for awake, well, and empowered. Honestly, I'm sitting on a desk right now with a very pleasant looking booky background. But like, if you just open this up... <laughs> My, my, I'm, I'm typically, I, I hate clutter and I'm very organized, but if you open this up, what, what you will see here is just the art studio of a, of a confused beginner trying mm -hmm. to play. And <laughs> I've yeah. got like canvases all over, half done ones, finished ones, things in the works. And I think that that is probably the thing that's really made me feel kind of a sense of awe and magic because a year, a year and a half ago, I, this room didn't have any. Yes. And some of the experiences I've had painting this year, they feel like divine, like mm. something's coming through me. Sure. Um, and it's really cool. So, that so awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I just appreciate your time. Thanks for being here. Um, where can people find you? Where do you normally, again, you've got your newsletter. How do they sign up for your newsletter? Uh, so everything is around Brookseam, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M. Mm -hmm. My newsletter is brookseam.substack.com. Okay. It's called Happiness is a Skill. My website is brookseam.com. My Instagram is at brookseam, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's where you find me. Um, I would love likes and follows and all those things. And, you know, hopefully it helps people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Well, I think this book this is for so many different kinds of people. And I think just hearing your story, create more empathy in the world of what people are going through. And to just understanding, you know, the ramifications of this journey that you've been on and how it's impacted you. And hopefully it'll make people stop and think twice before maybe jumping on this easy, quote unquote, fix and what the ramifications are going to be. But I also just love your writing, the way you're expressing yourself, the way that you share it. I, I would never have guessed this is your first book, honestly. So I hope you're really proud. Cause I, I think reading it, it was just, it was an experience. And I flew, like I said, flew through it. And uh, I haven't done that in a long time. So uh, that says, well, that says a lot. Yeah, you bet. And we're going to give a copy of this away. And so everyone pay attention to uh, the post. You can find fuck it buckets. At fuck yes. It buckets. And oh. fuck it buckets. We're going to give away a fuck it bucket necklace or a keychain, your preference as well. So uh, I love it. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate it so very much. And I wish you the best of luck in all that you're doing. Thank you, Holly. You bet. Thank you again for being here. I am so grateful for your time. And if you liked what you heard, 
please head to where you listen to podcasts, rate and review. Please share on Instagram, your social media channels, wherever else you go so we can reach as many people as possible so they can meet these amazing women and hear these conversations. If you'd like to connect further, you can find me over at my website at halliesawyer.com or on Instagram. I'm usually going to be at uh, Hallie underscore Sawyer or The Odd Life, which is this podcast specific Instagram account. All right. Have a great day, everyone. We'll see you soon.